Well, turn in your Bibles again to the book of Philippians, the book of brotherly love. Just kidding. Um, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses of this letter to a church written uh, during a time of trial, during a time of suffering. Um, Paul writing in prison uh, to a church that is very near and dear to his heart. And so for tonight, we'll be looking at his, his introduction, his thanksgiving and his prayer uh, before he dives into the body of his letter. So first, uh, excuse me, Philippians 1, uh, we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. This reads God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Uh, Livestream weddings are a thing of today. Uh, before the rise of the pandemic known as COVID-19, we would usually be able to uh, not so much be able to flip on our computers, click a Zoom link, and attend a wedding or class. Uh, however, engaged couples today find themselves in quite a predicament, a, a quandary. Uh, they love each other. Uh, they seek to be wed. Uh, they seek to make vows to make vows before the Lord and before the people and to consummate their union. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're sensitive to friends and family, uh, those who are uncomfortable with making a trip to a wedding, uh, uncomfortable with a wedding's inevitable lack of social distancing. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to hit the dance floor? Uh, pandemic or no pandemic, am I right? Uh, and so the live stream wedding was born. Hundreds of thousands of friends and family, if you have that number, uh, can tune in in the comfort of their home. And plus, the engaged couple would even have to make the grueling decisions of finalizing a guest list. Everyone can come. Everyone. And yet, uh, as not optimal as live stream weddings may be, I think... They still capture the essence and spirit of a wedding. Whether or not we are able to attend in person or not, 
uh, much like how usually, usually we are not the bridegroom, uh, we are not the bride. Uh, we, as groomsmen, we as bridesmaids, we as mother, mothers of the bride, father of the groom, friends, family, uh, our joy is still full uh, because what we see unfold before us, what we witness ultimately before the Lord. Um, so, in like manner, uh, Paul writes to a church, a local body from afar. Uh, the church has only heard of what has become of Paul, their first pastor, uh, the one with Timothy who initially brought the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, their Savior, to them. Uh, they hear how he is in prison. Uh, he is in chains. And it concerns them so much that they gathered a collection, a, a gift to send to Paul to minister to his needs. Uh, Paul, the pastor, in turn, has received their gift and have heard how, of, how they are doing from Afar. Uh, he can't be with them, obviously, at this moment because of his chains. Uh, but there are some truths he holds on to, truths that he claims uh, his confidence in, and that makes him write these words. We have this letter to the Philippians from a pastor who shares his joy with the church from afar. And he is encouraging this church to do likewise, to share in his joy. Uh, Paul encourages the church in Philippi with an opening thanksgiving that they, and by extension we as modern believers, can have confidence in God. That God will complete any and every work that he has begun. It is God who perseveres us to the end. And then it is God who will ultimately receive all the glory and praise in doing so. Therefore, the church is called to press on, to push forward, to make every stride a stride in faith. In faith in Jesus, that God is working out everything for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, thus, Paul opens with his introduction, as he often does to all the churches he writes to. He then moves to a heartfelt thanksgiving giving thanks to God for all that he has done uh, in the lives of this church uh, who is near and dear to Paul's heart. And he moves to a quick prayer, a quick but rich, powerful prayer of intercession as a result of the thanks he has. Um, uh, he, he knows that it is the Lord who causes all things to happen for the good of people and the praises of, of his name and those people who know him can then move to intercede for others on their behalf in much like manner as the Lord Jesus Christ does and still do to this day. In Paul's opening words, Paul seeks to highlight the joy he has in the Philippian church and that they would share in the same confident joy as they partner with him in gospel ministry. And we'll see him introduce this confidence and joy in three sections. Uh, first is a salu salutation uh, from slaves. A salutation from slaves. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Uh, next is a thanksgiving from joy. A thanksgiving from joy. Verses 3 through 8. And lastly, an intercession from love. An intercession from love. Verses 9 through 11. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. A salutation from slaves. Verse 1 reads, Paul and Timothy, 
servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in customary form during the Hellenistic period, that period in which Greek culture, thought, and writing, arts uh, were most pervasive, Paul begins his letter with his traditional salutation of author, audience, and greeting. Uh, here he first identifies himself, Paul. Paul of Tarsus, or Saul of Tarsus, the man who was a Pharisee, turned tent maker, gospel preacher, church planter, slave of Jesus Christ. Paul planted this church in Philippi back in Acts 16, as we covered last week. And from two families, the church of Philippi blossomed and grew into full partnership, full membership with Paul. And as Paul moved across Asia Minor, uh, continuing to planting churches and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, these saints in their local city focused on the work in their context. Um, Paul then identifies himself with his protege, Timothy. Timothy is a man Paul evangelized to and picked up along the way through Lystra in the start of his secondary missionary journey uh, because he was of both Jewish and Greek heritage. Uh, Paul took interest in this young man because he was well thought of by the brothers who were there in Lystra. Um, Acts 16 reads, uh, previously on his first missionary journey, Paul went through Lystra and planted a church there in that surrounding region. Um, so therefore, Philippi would have been one of the first cities after Paul's Macedonian vision in which Paul would be able to labor and serve alongside Timothy. So Paul moves through Lystra, gets the vision, turns his eyes towards Macedonia, takes Timothy alongside with him, and bam, first place they're at, they're in Philippi. I think this explains why Timothy is included in the greeting of the letter. Oftentimes in other New Testament epistle, Paul identifies himself, obviously, and whoever is with him, uh, that is of importance. Here, Timothy plays a major role in the life and ministry of the Philippian church. As we will uh, see later, Timothy is very beloved uh, by the church in Philippi in the end of chapter 2. A key phrase... I want to draw your attention to is bond servants, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, what follows after Paul's identifica identification of himself is usually some sort of self-label. Uh, and this label is important. Uh, this label communicates to us how Paul views himself in the writing of the letter. How does Paul see himself when he is penning these words? What kind of qualifications is he trying to express to his audience that are most important to him? Uh, most often, the label apostle of Jesus Christ is used. Uh, here we have the position of spiritual authority. Uh, he is the spokesman of Christ. He is emphasizing the fact that he is chosen by God as he has seen the risen Christ to be one of the first torch bearers of the gospel. And as, as an apostle, he would have a unique role in the penning of new revelation from the Holy Spirit. Um, whether he knew at the time of writing this letter and all his other letters that it will eventually become Holy Scripture uh, is beyond the scope of our discussion. But the point is, whenever you see the title, Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be sure that Paul is leaning on his godly authority. Uh, sometimes there is no title. Uh, 
like the letters to the Thessalonians, Paul does not give himself a title. He merely includes his name and those he is with. And he dies in, into the recipient of this letter. Here, he is not trying to draw attention to anything about himself. Uh, there's nothing important to emphasize who he is, but rather what he is writing to them takes precedence. He jumps right into it. Most infrequently, Paul would use the title of prisoner of the Lord. Uh, this is where he is writing from prison, much like this one. He is seeking to emphasize his position because of the result, the, the consequences of preaching the gospel. Uh, here there is a solemnity to his title. He wears the chains for Christ and he reminds us that uh, truly the follower of Jesus Christ must have first counted the cost. Uh, but for our letter and for some others, he calls himself a servant bond servant. But I think the best word, the word that would have rung true for the readers of this letter is the title of slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Slaves. That is how Paul saw himself. And this is in essence how every Christian should see himself or herself. We are slaves to our master, Jesus, who bought us. He purchased our pardon for sin on the cross by going to die in our place. No longer are we enslaved by sin, Paul explains in the book of Romans, but rather we are now slaves to righteousness, namely to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is how Paul identifies himself to the Philippian church. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He's not leaning on any kind of godly authority, but he brings himself low. He lowers himself to the level of a common Christian and explains that he is just like you. He's just like me. We are all slaves of Jesus. Uh, this down-to-earthness emphasizes, I think, the, the close relationship Paul had with the Philippian church. There was no animosity between these groups. There was no tension. Uh, Paul loved this church and the church loved him. He didn't have to prove his authority to some, like, like to some of the churches, but rather he flips the script and said, flexing his honor to be an apostle, he holds up, he holds up the high honor of being a slave. Our slavehood, our servanthood is based upon this seemingly paradoxical high honor. We get to worship Christ. We get to serve him. We get to serve one another. All of the ministry is based upon privilege, not upon right. We get to do ministry. We get to serve. It is never we must serve. We have to serve. We're allowed to. Because all we are are slaves. And Jesus said it best himself that we're merely slaves. We've only have done what the master have asked us to do. Nothing more, nothing less. So continuing on in Paul's salutation, now you have the addressees, the audience. Uh, pay attention to Paul's audience. Sometimes he addresses his letter to the church, sometimes to an individual. Sometimes he gives a unique address to the church, like in, in the book of Romans, the beloved brothers in Rome. Uh, to Philippi, he calls them saints or holy ones those who are set apart by God in Christ, coupled along with the common phrase in Pauline writing that he loves to use in Christ Jesus to stress the union saints have with their savior. Paul lovingly addresses this church, reminding them of their identity, their identity chiefly found in the person 
of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul mentions with the overseers and deacons. These are the two offices of leadership in the church. And it is important for us to ask, why does Paul single out the leadership of the church in his greeting? Uh, nowhere else does he do that. Uh, Paul talks about church leadership in his later writings, the, namely the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But here he brings out the leaders of the church to remind the people that they are truly subject, arguably more so to their local leaders than Paul. As we notice already, Paul does not call upon his apostolic authority here, even though it is a given. So as Paul moves to address all these different topics and issues he wishes to address, uh, I believe he is reminding the church that they are with or they're united to their local leadership in the areas Paul will later delineate. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you is Paul's go-to greeting. And he plays upon the common Hellenistic greeting of the time, the Greek term that means greeting, karin, uh, but then he uses the root form of that word, charis, which means grace, which coincides very well, I think, with the Christian experience. All of the Christian life is grace, and so for Paul to say grace to you as a greeting is no better expression than saying something like, what's up today? Uh, the following term, peace, then, is equally special for the Christian uh, because of the heritage we share from the Old Testament. Uh, the term shalom. Uh, shalom was given as a greeting to express a deep and abiding peace from a friend. So when grace and peace come together, uh, that is from God. That is from Jesus Christ. There is an intimate sense of not just friendliness from Paul, but of familial intimacy. One such as uh, receiving like a dear note from a friend or a call from a brother or sister. Uh, that relationship is highlighted by the fact that both God the Father and Christ the Son is mentioned here. The both of them emphasizing their relationship. So we have a greeting from a man with a deep relationship to this church. Uh, this church is very dear to him and it expressed from the outset of this letter. So as we move to his thanksgiving, uh, we clearly see this love coursing through Paul's words as he gives thanks to God for this body of believers. And this brings us to verse 3 in our second point. Uh, thanksgiving from joy. Uh, if there is one phrase that can quickly summarize Paul's feelings for these people, towards these people, it would probably be, my heart is full. My heart is full. So he starts by thanking God. He first notes the frequency of this thanking. And all my remembrance of you, uh, which is whenever he thinks of the Philippian church, he thanks God. Uh, much like when you think of a friend who is far away, uh, you think on all the good times. You probably say a quick prayer of thanksgiving, reminiscing on the good times. But for Paul, he most would have likely prayed a real prayer from start to finish for these, uh, for these people. Because he was such a prayer warrior. Uh, but notice that God is still the recipient of this prayer as he is the recipient of all prayers. So remember, even when we pray for people, we pray on behalf for people. We intercede for people. At the end of it all, we are still praying to God. God hears all prayers from the most desperate to the most sentimentally thankful. So Paul 
praise to God, his God. I thank my God. Notice in verse 4, his attitude, joy. Prayer carried on by joy. Paul's prayers are supported, carried by this attitude of joy. Notice Paul is using the term offering, a callback to the Old Testament sacrificial system in which worshipers would offer uh, sacrifices of bulls and goats and grains and birds, all these things, but it was the heart that God cared for. Uh, Worship without joy is like biting into a piece of stale bread. There's nothing pleasant about it. It is devoid of the properties that would make eating it enjoyable. And in like manner, worship through prayer that is done begrudgingly or a heart absent of joy is not only distasteful for the Lord, but it would be something he would spit out, as he says. But you would argue, you would say, what about the times when we lament, when we cry out to the Lord? What about the times of intense trial when joy is the last thing on our minds? Uh, That would bring us to a definition of joy. As Paul later explained that, that joy for him abounds regardless of how low he is brought or how high on life he is. Uh, Paul explains that in both circumstances, he knows how to be content. He knows how to be joyful uh, because it is the sustaining presence of his Lord Jesus Christ that carries him through both spectrums of emotion. And this can be said in our prayers, both in laughter and in tears. There is joy. Next, notice the sphere of Paul's prayer in verse 5. When Paul is praying, he is praying with the sight of the Philippians' participation or partnership because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Um, From the first converts in Acts 16 until today, the entire time they have stuck it out with Paul. They have ministered to his needs. They have preached Christ with the same energy and fervor as Paul did. And with that, Paul prays with thanks. They are on the same team and he can't be thankful enough. Wouldn't that make you thankful that you have a partner, you have a team member that is laboring alongside you? You two may not even be in the same place at the same time, but the ministry of the gospel transcends geography as it does chronology. Uh, Paul knows that he has teammates with him in the field of the gospel harvest laboring to the same end, that people are being saved and Christ's name is being exalted and God is being glorified. And so... Of course he rejoices. In verse 6, we get a deeper look into Paul's prayers. His heart for the church. He has confidence, he says. His prayer is wrapped with joy and confidence that it is, it is a God. It is God who not only began the work in these people, but it is God who finishes that work. Now, Paul uses the word, the term to, to, to perfect, to bring to completion. Uh, what an astounding term to use to describe this completion in our lives, our sanctification. Uh, There will come a point in which we will be made perfect. Uh, We'll be made complete. Uh, We'll be perfectly like our Savior, Jesus. And that day happens, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. It is mentioned in many times, in many places, throughout both Old and New Testaments, but In short, 
The day of the Lord is the inaugural day of Christ's second coming. Uh, Jesus explains, no one knows the day and hour, but it will come suddenly. Uh, the importance is the time spent before that day. We are to use it wisely. We are to invest in things of eternal value and significance. But for Paul, his confidence is found in the fact that God is the one who is in process of completing this work of perfection. God is the one who is also investing in eternal things. This is one of those core themes of this letter. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, Christians and non-Christians alike feel a tension between these two spheres. But this issue is resolved not by a either or. It is either God's sovereignty or it's man's responsibility. It is resolved with a both and. It is both God's sovereignty and it is man's responsibility. So Paul says that it, he is right. He is just. He is correct in having this confidence in the work that God is doing in these believers because they are in his heart. How did they get there? Paul says they partake of grace with him. Partakers of grace. They share in the same grace Paul experienced when he was on the road. When he was preaching in Asia Minor. City after city. Synagogue after synagogue. A place of public discourse after place of public discourse. Um, and even to the point when Paul and his partners were thrown into prison, they shared in his ministry. They preached the gospel where they were. They defended the gospel in their workplaces, in their homes, in their towns. And all of this Paul gives thanks for. And it also gave him confidence in the reality of God's working hand in their lives. Both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So much so that Paul says that God is the witness. Look at that. For God is my witness in verse 8. God is the one who has observed all these things to be true. And when God is the witness, when God is on our side, we can be completely sure in what we are doing is right. What is just, what is correct. So with God as his witness, Paul says how he longs for them. How I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And he prays a prayer of thanksgiving and longing because just how a dear friend wishes to spend more time with his friend. Paul wishes to be with these dear saints. This church gets it. They understood the gospel priority. They shared in the same convictions about the gospel as Paul did, and Paul longed to be with them. Who wouldn't want to be with like-minded people? It makes the service all the more sweet. It makes it all the more enjoyable, does it not? When I'm here with Wayne, Missy, Naomi, uh, Mike, Val, Kristen, Rachel, my wife, ministry is the best. When I'm here with you, I'm so encouraged that it makes all the more difficult situations fade away in my mind. Uh, the same is true for Paul. The slave of Jesus is in prison on behalf of his master. Paul called his suffering uh, the filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Uh, not because Christ's work and suffering on the cross was insufficient for atonement for sin, but rather he, Paul, and us Christians fall in line with the same suffering Christ endured. 
that the ministry of Christ continued in Paul the Apostle as it did with the saints in Philippi, as it does with us today. When we suffer on behalf of Christ, we rejoice because we bear the same stripes that he bore. Now, this is the root of Paul's confidence. It is through his sufferings. The Philippian church heard of, they, they moved in love to send him a gift. They provided for his needs. They prayed for him and we're, we're all the more bold to speak of Christ. And therefore the, the seal of Christ is clear and true on this church. What is, what is more encouraging for a pastor than that? That you have a body of local believers who go out of their way, who risk their necks to serve a dear brother who is imprisoned thousands of miles away? What kind of confidence does that produce? What sure sign of God's working hand that brings to saints perfection is that? So Paul wants to be with these kinds of people. He longs for them, he says, with an affection, a love found only in Christ Jesus. Beyond all of his present circumstances, Paul prays a prayer of thanksgiving with joy. A joy that is rooted and grounded past his present circumstances, beyond that. One that is centered around the work of God, the partnership we share with fellow saints. I hope this is the same kind of feelings and thoughts you have for your friends, for your partners in ministry. When you think of them, you pray for them. You pray that they would continue in the work the Lord is doing in them. You would be confident not so much in yourself, um, but you would be confident in God. You would be confident in this God-given perseverance that because when you think of your friends, you remember that it is the Lord who keeps them. It is the Lord who perseveres them, who brings them to the end. So you pray, your prayers are praying that God do your will. May your will be done as it is true in their lives and as it, true, as it is true in mine. Well, let's go further and see the contents of Paul's prayer. Here's dear friends. And this is an intercession from love. Verses 9 through 11. This is Paul's desire. This is what he hopes for, what he longs for in his people. This is what your pastor dreams about when he thinks of his people. He prays that their love may abound more and more. Love is his chief concern. Love, as he would write to the Corinthians, is the, the flame of the Christian. Without love, we would be nothing. We can be skilled and gifted in so many areas of the Christian life, but without the motivating, driving force of love, we would be nothing. And so Paul rightly identifies that it is our love that must grow. It must abound, meaning it must self-multiply. It is like a growing organism that begins as a single cell, but self-propagates and divides and grows and grows and grows until it can be clear and evidently seen by all. But notice, notice here what Paul says. It's this love framed by two hedges, two pillars, knowledge and all discernment. This is similar to Jesus' explanation of worship. It must be hedged. It must be guarded by spirit and truth. 
Our love in like fashion must be guarded by knowledge and discernment. Let me explain. Knowledge is knowledge of God. It is deepening understanding of who God is. The more we know God, the deeper worship becomes. The more genuine our love becomes. Furthermore, there must be discernment or wisdom. That is knowledge and application. There must be skillful living that is applied alongside knowledge in which love finds its purest form. Therefore, when Paul goes to write to think on things that are excellent, pure, noble, true, of good repute, so on and so forth, you know that he isn't saying these things in order to be clever or in order to be, uh, have some kind of rhetorical flourish. But it's based on this very prayer. Therefore, as we grow in these things, Paul says, then we may be able to approve or to judge the things that are truly excellent, things that are praiseworthy, things that reflect the heart of God. Or at the end of the day, in order, in order for the purpose of being sincere or of right heart and intention and blameless, where no accusation can be thrown at you and, it, and, and have it stick to the last day, pure and blameless for the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, uh, the end of our sanctification. And here's the one of many effects of this growing love. There's a production of fruit filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit of righteousness is a phrase that it's difficult to part as the grammar is not most straightforward. You can ask Wayne Slusser to my left what kind of genitive this is. He can answer that for you. But what is most obvious here is the fact that Paul specifically uses the term fruit, fruit to describe the outcome of this growing love. Love chiefly being what? The first fruit of the Holy Spirit. When you are producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you know that it all points back to the inherent reality of Christ's righteousness imputed in you that allowed you to produce the fruit in the first place. As Paul explains, that comes through Jesus Christ. So all of this love, all of this growth, all of this knowledge, all of this discernment, all of this production of fruit is done for what? To the glory and praise of of God. Look at the three tiers of goals. Three tiered goals. Couldn't think of a clever way to say this. Paul pushes the people towards in this prayer. First, we have one that is inherently personal, a personal goal. That our personal love, our love for God and love for neighbor would, would grow. And simultaneously, alongside our knowledge and discernment will grow as well. That's a personal goal, the first tier. Next, see the goal to the end of this age, that we would stand sincere and blameless before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and hear his confession of faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful slave. And lastly, see that ultimate goal, the goal of all goals, the goal above Every goal in which everything is done. 
the glory of God umbrella as the previous two goals, as it is for God's glory. It is for the praise of his name that God would be lifted high and reign supreme above everything else. That is the ultimate goal in view in this prayer from Paul. Just these three goals wrapped up in three verses. That is Paul's prayer. And I think it's breathtaking. What a prayer. What a petition. What an intercession on behalf of these people who are so far away. There's so much we can learn from these three verses alone, but I want us to focus on just one point of application for tonight. Is this desire that your love may abound more and more, this desire a desire you have for yourself? Uh, moving past yourself, uh, is it a desire you have for your brother, for your sister, when they are growing in the Lord? Do you desire to grow in this love yourself? Is the gospel precious to you? Is knowing Jesus precious to you? Do you have a desire to know God more, to share in his sufferings, to love your neighbor more? Are these things growing in you, like Paul says, abounding in you more and more? Do you desire to be made like him in every respect? And do you desire it for your brother and sister? Like manner for Paul and these saints that he desired for them to grow in this love. Do you desire to have that love growing in your brother and sister? Or do you just seek it to keep it in yourself and just care about yourself? And this is but a sampling of what Paul will further go into, what he will elaborate more on. And so I'm super excited uh, to crack this book of joy and confidence wide open with you as we study it together. Let us pray. Father God, we know and we realize that if you were to abandon us, if salvation was on our own and sanctification is on our own strength, we have we would have lost our salvation long before today. We would have made a wreck of ourselves. But Lord, the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, pervades and goes past our day-to-day failings. That your grace and your mercy truly is more. And so God, give us a heart of thankfulness like Paul here. That we know that you are working as we are working alongside you. And that in so doing, our love for you, our love for your truth, our love for what is excellent, what is pure, what is noble, all these things, our love would grow. It would abound. And so God, help us to do that. We can only do it through your strength. We pray in your son's name. Amen.